You can turn in your Bibles this morning to the 12th chapter of the book of Romans. It's one of the most familiar texts in all of Romans. As, as you go there, I want to first give a quick preview of the preaching plan for the next few weeks here at RBC. With our members retreat next Saturday, we have a guest speaker next Sunday. His name is Sam Choi, familiar face to those who've been around for a while. He's pastor of Prior Lake Baptist Church, a church which has partnered with us and blessed us in many ways over the last few years as a church. And then the following two Sundays, Phil and I will each be focusing on different themes related to Christmas. And then the day after Christmas, Camden will be preaching for us to close out 2021. So a lot of great things in store for us as a church in the days ahead. Now, if you calculate all of that out, that means that today is also the last study of Romans for us in 2021. It's been a great year in the letter, and this is a great closing text for us today. Just a short passage, just two verses, and our focus today is really going to be just on the first of those two verses. But this short passage is pivotal in the letter. In fact, our text today is really the hinge or the turning point in the entire book of Romans. And uh, conveniently as well, it's very fitting for Thanksgiving season as well. So let's go ahead and take a look together at Romans 12, verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to do something. Let's pause here. This, This morning we will focus eventually on what Paul calls us to do in this verse. But I, but I first want to make sure we grasp a few things just from that opening line. So, so just pay attention to the kind of call Paul is making in that first verse. Look at the first few words again. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters. You see, this is a family kind of call. This is Paul's call to his brothers and sisters in Christ. Or to think of that a different way, This call is not directed at those who don't know Jesus. This call is directed at those who do know him. Or you could say this this is not directed at those who do not understand God's mercy. This is directed at those who do. But then notice the, the verb that Paul uses. The ESV says, I appeal to you. Now, if you have any other translation... It probably, doesn't, uh, it probably doesn't say appeal. And, and this is where I, I want to think about this, because this verb is translated in a lot of different ways. And I think it's worth hearing how different translations take that, that verb. Because the truth is, there's no, this is one of the examples of there, where there's no single English word that like parallels the word behind this. And that's why you get all these translations. It's just helpful to hear how different translators take this. So the ESV... And the, and the NRSV both say, I appeal to you. But if you have another translation, like maybe the CSB or the NIV, it'll say, I urge you. Or the King James tradition, if you're familiar with that, it said, I beseech you. Or the NET says, I exhort you. Or the NLT says, I plead with you. And I think all of those are helpful to hear. My point isn't actually to to say one's a whole lot better than another, but just to get the feel for the kind of call 
Paul is making to his brothers and sisters. He's imploring them, urging them, exhorting them, pleading with them to do something. But also notice, Paul does not say, I command you to do this. Even though he could have said that, and even though we need to listen to what this, to what this says. But, but instead, Paul likes to use this kind of language when he's talking to his brothers and sisters. He likes to appeal to them, to urge them to certain kinds of actions. And he does this quite a lot in his letters. I was looking this up this week, and Paul uses this same sort of phrase a good 14 times in his letters. Uh, just listen to two of them. Maybe these would be familiar uh, to some of you. In Ephesians 4, which is also at a huge turning point in a letter. Three chapters in Ephesians are about deep doctrine about the church. And then at the turning point in that letter, maybe remember what Paul says. He says, I, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Or the one that I love the most is probably in Philemon. Paul is writing to a dear friend, very personal letter, and he's got something very specific that he wants Philemon to do with his former slave, uh, Onesimus. Paul even tells him, you know, Philemon, I could command you to do this. But listen to what he says and says. He says, yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. And that's the same kind of thing Paul's doing here. This is a, a family kind of appeal, urge. Like, like maybe, maybe like a dad to his kids, but maybe think of a dad to like his, his adult children. He's not commanding, but is pleading with those children to, to partake in a, or go after a certain direction or action. But then also notice, look at the verse. Again, notice the basis for the call. So verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters. You, of course, hear the therefore in the verse. And uh, you know, I hope by now, whenever you see a therefore, you at least ponder. I don't like to say this because it's, I say this all the time, but what the therefore is therefore. You know, it's just like, I feel like that's so old, you know, like dad joke. But, but it's, it's still helpful, right? What the therefore is therefore. Paul typically uses... Therefore, to draw a conclusion or to make an application. Those would be his two primary things he does with that. And, and make an application based on what he just said, and that's what he's doing here. But, but in this text, Paul isn't just making an application based on just the last couple of verses. Or even just, on the, even just from the last few chapters. I think it's fair to say that Paul is actually basing everything he's about to say on everything that he has already said in Romans 1 through 11. See, Romans 12, 1 and following is the right response to Romans 1 through 11. Like, this is that significant of a, of a verse in the book of Romans. All the doctrine in Romans is meant to lead us somewhere. And I think sometimes we can forget this when we're reading a book like Romans. We, we think that it's just Paul diving deep into doctrine. But I think you could say that the doctrinal depth of Romans is all meant to lead you somewhere, to real-life obedience, to true worship. All that's in Romans 1 through 11 is meant to lead us into Romans 12 to 16. 
But for now, let's just take a look at verse 1 again and see more of the basis. Because he says, therefore, right? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters. But then he says, by the mercies of God to do something. Okay? And that's, that's what we want to focus on for a little bit. Paul is saying something like this. In light of the mercies of God, which we've been drinking in for the last 11 chapters, brothers and sisters, this is what I urge you to do. Now for the question that we'll focus on the rest of the day. What exactly are we being called to do in the text? That's the heart of this text. Look at verse 1 again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. What is the call in the verse? It's the call in light of the mercies of God to sacrifice. Now, a few things to know right, right away about that. First, this is not a new call in the Bible. The call to sacrifice. The call to sacrifice is embedded in the story of the Bible from its opening pages. In fact, even before there are any instructions recorded in the Bible, people already know that they should be offering sacrifices to the Lord. Because of who God is, what God has done for us, we should offer sacrifices back to God. You see that as far back as Cain and Abel, even though there's not even instructions written down about it. They know, this is embedded in the story of the Bible, that people ought to offer sacrifices to God. The second, we should remember, or realize if you don't know this, that offering sacrifices to God in the Bible is not only about offering sacrifices for sin. Now, don't get me wrong. This is certainly a key aspect of many sacrifices in the Bible that you offer them because you've sinned against the Lord to atone for sin. This is all over the place, but that is by no means the whole story of sacrifice in the Bible. There were, for example, many voluntary sacrifices that you could offer in the Old Testament simply as an act of worship to God because you loved him, because you were thankful for what he had done for you. In the Psalms as well, there are several places where the psalmists speak of offering sacrifices of thanksgiving to the Lord. In fact, we saw that same sort of thing in our New Testament reading today. Did you hear that in the book of Hebrews? Just listen again to those verses from Hebrews 13. It says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And don't forget to do good and share what you have with, it, with one another, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So if, if, if our conception of sacrifice in the Bible is limited to offering sacrifices for sins, that conception is too narrow, and it will be a problem when you read this text in Romans 12. And then third, what is different in Romans 12 is what exactly is being offered. That's the difference between most of the sacrifices. Okay? When you read the Bible and you read Romans 12, 
The difference is what is being offered. What exactly is being sacrificed? Throughout the Bible, what would typically be offered? You see, typically animals, right? Sheep, bulls, goats, doves, etc. There were also sacrifices of grain, the first fruits of a harvest, and so forth as well, right? But in Romans 12:1, what is the offering? What is the sacrifice? What is the thing that is put on the altar, so to speak? Paul was calling us to offer our bodies as the sacrifice. This is a call to offer ourselves back to God. And notice specifically, Paul says, it's to offer our bodies back to God. And when you take Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 together, this this text is about giving our entire beings back to God both body and mind, both body and soul. Our bodies, especially in verse 1, and our minds, especially in verse 2. God has bought us all through the blood of Jesus, and God has bought all of all of us through Jesus, both body and soul. So Paul, instead of saying, look at all the mercies of God, now go out and find a lamb and offer it to the Lord. Or go out and find a dove and offer it to the Lord. Or a pigeon or whatever it is. Or some grain. Or even some of your money. Now Paul says, no, no. You need to give your life fully to the God who first gave himself for you. And this is, by the way, why I had us read about the Nazarite vow earlier from the book of Numbers. It's not because I think that this is a direct parallel to that, if you remember that from Numbers chapter 6, but what stands out most to me about the the Nazarite vow is that the person was, in essence, offering himself or herself to God, which that stands out from the other sacrifices in the Old Testament. And it was also open to any person, man or woman. You didn't have to be a priest or anything. You, you, just, you could just voluntarily offer yourself to the Lord for however long you wanted. But that's also the key difference right? between Romans 12 and number 6. The Nazarite vow was always temporary. It could be, or at least it was typically temporary. It could be for a week, or a month, or a year, however long you wanted. But one day it would be over, and you would go back to normal life. But for us, this this call is to offer our lives to God forever. God does not lay claim on just part of us for part of the time. God has laid claim on all of us for all time. This is the heart of what Paul's getting at in Romans 12, verse 1. Now let's take a look at it again and then look at what he says about the sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now just a translation note here. Some translations will do this. I would put the word living 
on the other side of the word sacrifice. Okay? In other words, the main call is to present our bodies as a sacrifice. And then there are three descriptions of the sacrifice. Right? A sacrifice that is living, holy, and acceptable or pleasing to God. Okay? So, in, so in contrast to many other sacrifices, we offer a sacrifice that keeps on living, that is alive. Like in other words, in offering an animal, the animal gets killed. But in offering ourselves to God, we keep on living. See, God wants us not dead, but alive. Okay? Our lives as Christians, I mean, this is a, one of the takeaways from that. Our lives as Christians actually mean something to God. And, and sometimes I hear people like wonder, especially when they're discouraged, you know, why doesn't God just like save us and like get us out of here? <laughs> you know? But your life as a Christian matters to God. God wants us not dead, but alive. And we offer ourselves as a sacrifice that is alive. So there's a difference in the sacrifice and that we offer a living sacrifice, but there's also similarities, right? Because we are to offer a holy sacrifice sacrifice. And on that, I think we should remember that Christ has truly made us holy. This is Paul's view when he looks out at a church, for example. When he looks out at the church, what does he say? To all you sinners out there. You know, no, when, when Paul's thinking about the church, what is he, how does he refer to the church? He does this at the beginning of basically every letter that he writes. He says, I'm writing the letter to the Romans to whom? To all the saints, or to to God's holy people. But perhaps the main idea, I think, of being a holy sacrifice is more that our bodies are fully dedicated to God, that we're set apart entirely to God or consecrated to God. This is the same language that you saw in that Nazarite vow, that this person is holy to the Lord, set apart, consecrated to the Lord. In other words, there is, there is no part of us that remains our own. There is, there is no room in our hearts that is off limits to God. Christ has bought us in our entirety, both body and soul, so we are to offer ourselves body and soul completely to God, set apart for his work and his purposes day after day. This kind of sacrifice, one that is alive, holy, is what is pleasing to God. And, and again, I think you would hear that in sacrificial language, and you would think of like the, the sacrifices of the Old Testament especially, where they are burnt up, and there's like this smell, this aroma that goes up, and, and it's always like pleasing to the Lord. When we offer ourselves willingly and completely to the Lord, for his work and his purposes, this kind of sacrifice pleases the Lord. It is acceptable to him. It is sweet to him. And now for Paul's final remark in verse 1. We'll take a look at the whole verse together. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, this is your spiritual worship. The call in this text is to give ourselves back 
to the God who first gave himself for us. That's the main call in this text. And Paul closes the verse by saying that that kind of sacrifice is our spiritual worship. And there again, depending on the translation you have in front of you, there are a variety of ways that that last phrase is translated there. And I would just think one that's of note are translations that also say, this is our reasonable service, or our reasonable worship. In any case, I think there are two main things you get from this. One, this sort of voluntary sacrifice of ourselves to God is worship. And it's worth noting that the word worship here in this verse is the same word that typically describes temple worship. In fact, Paul uses the word only one other time in Romans, and it's specifically about temple worship. It's, it's in his list of like privileges that Jewish people have from Romans 9. Do you remember what he says? They're Israelites. To them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the, and the worship, like the temple worship. This is the same word here. It's typically used about temple worship, but Christians today don't offer animal sacrifices as the worship. Instead, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices back to God, not at a single location or for a set amount of time, but for all time in every location. And Paul says, this is our worship. Second, this sort of voluntary sacrifice is what is truly reasonable. If God is if God has really done for us what we confess he's done for us, like what we sing about and we say every week that he's done for us, then what response makes sense? What is our reasonable response? It is this. It is to offer ourselves, body and soul, completely back to God. For God to do with us and through us whatever he wants to do. Now, we could certainly continue on into verse 2. Uh, today, but since we, we're going to have like a month in between our studies, I've decided to save that because it'd be easier to pick up there in verse 2 for our first sermon of 2022, Lord willing. But you can already see just by looking ahead at verse 2 that God wants not only our bodies in verse 1, but also our minds in verse 2. God desires and deserves all of all of us. And when we offer that to Him willingly, Day by day, this is our reasonable worship. But for the rest of this morning, what I want to do is I want to I first, I want to reflect just a bit on what's happened in the letter to the Romans. Okay, this is the biggest turning point in the letter. And when we step back and we think about how the letter unfolds, the order of the letter, I think we can learn a lot from what Paul has done in the letter, especially how Paul moves from prolonged gospel meditation to direct gospel application. That's how the letter to the Romans unfolds. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to say that a letter in the New Testament that starts with application is inferior, like the letter to, uh, of James or something. I love the book of James. Okay? I'm, just, I'm just wanting us to think, though, about how Romans moves from gospel meditation to gospel application. 
And I think there's something you can learn from that. There's a lot of things you can learn from that. Like one, this is a reminder to us that the gospel is the basis for Christian application. Like it is what grounds application. As is often said, things like this, the imperative, like the command, flows out of the indicative is usually how this is said. In other words, what God has already done for us in Jesus is the basis for his call to us to do something. And this is really unique to Christianity. We don't move first toward God hoping that God will respond well to our offerings or our obedience because none of us goes after God first. Instead, God moved toward us first. God acted for us first in Jesus. And this love, this mercy of God toward us in Christ is what compels us to live for and love God. But we can say more than just that the gospel is the basis for application. I think the gospel is also the best and most powerful motivation for application in the Christian life. We can use all kinds of things to try to get people to do stuff we want them to do. And, and I think, as, as parents know this, you can use all sorts of stuff to try to get your kids to do what you want them to do or not do what you don't want them to do. Uh, you can, but you can do that with your spouse or with your roommate or with your neighbor. You can try all kinds of things to get people to do what you want them to do. And God himself uses many things in Scripture to motivate his people to action, whether that be promising reward for obedience or, or threatening judgment for disobedience or various other things. But I think we can agree that nothing ought to motivate Christian behavior more than the Christian gospel. What God has done for us already in Jesus is the best and most powerful motivation for holy living. Or to, or to use the language of the text, the sacrifice of Christ is the greatest motivation for self-sacrifice. It's when we dwell on and appreciate and grasp the sacrifice of Christ for us that we are actually stirred, enabled, provoked to sacrifice ourselves for Christ and his people. What Paul did in the letter is not accidental. That would be my, my thought. It's like that there is a reason that Romans 12 verse 1 is not in Romans 2. Prolonged gospel meditation is what fuels gospel application. But as we wrap things up, we should ask ourselves, what gospel application is Paul calling for? This, this text is broad. As you read through Romans 12 to 16, he's going to get into very, very specific, concrete sorts of things. But this text is broad in its application. We spend an entire year soaking in the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. What should we do in response? And the main answer in the text this week is the same as it was in the text last week. The answer is worship. But last week, at the end of Romans 11, the call to worship had a different feel to it. It, it looked at worship from a different 
angle. Like the response there at the end of Romans 11, you remember the text, oh, the depths of the wisdom and riches and knowledge of God. And it's this song of praise. Okay? That, that response there that was called for to the glories of the gospel was to stand back in awe and to worship. The response was to praise God, to, to say among the nations, our God reigns, to sing with the saints, all glory be to Christ. That was the feel of that call to worship at the end of chapter 11. But here at the beginning of Romans 12, the same call to worship takes on a different shape, a different feel. Because the response called for here to God's mercy is not so much to fall on our faces as much as it is to climb up on the altar and to offer yourself, body and soul, to God. The call is to renounce all our claims on ourselves, to confess that we belong, both body and soul, to Christ, and to actually live that way. Both the singing and the sacrificing are what comprise true Christian worship. But let me also go one step further today. This text confronts us all with a hard truth, that there is no part of our lives that can be off limits to God. It's all his. Too often Christians in our day, in America especially, think in terms of how much, how much time, how much energy, how much of our money, or how much of this or that we can afford to give to God. And this text destroys that picture of half-hearted Christianity. All that we are belongs to God. God has laid claim on all of us here, and he's laid claim on all of all of us. Too often we can act as if certain areas of our lives are off limits to God. We give God the keys, as it were, to many of the rooms of our lives, but not to all of them, or at least not to that one We confess Jesus is Lord of all, but is he Lord of all of you? Or have have you been holding on to this sin or that love, to, to this dream or that ambition, to this person or that idol, even though you know Jesus wants that part of you too? This text calls us to give ourselves fully unreservedly to the God who first gave himself for us, or to put it in a way that fits the season, the call is to offer ourselves in gratitude and thankfulness to the God who's given himself for us. Let's pray. Father, would you help us, Lord? This has been a great journey this year. We have thought so much, so deeply about the gospel this year. Lord, would you stir us to offer our lives, our bodies, our minds to you in gratitude and in thankfulness. Day by day, we know that this sort of living, holy sacrifice is what pleases you. 
And Lord, we confess today that you are worthy. You are worthy of all of our singing. You are worthy of our bodies, our minds, of all that we are. Because you are our creator and you are our redeemer. And so I pray that you will do your work through your word in our hearts as we move forward from here today. In Jesus' name, amen.